1929, Viktor Hotev, a Bulgarian immigrant to the United States, began to question some of the biblical interpretations and practices of his church. A devout Seventh-day Adventist, he began to preach about his ideas for Reformation and wrote about them in a book he entitled The Shepherd's Rod. However, his calls for reform were not well received. He was viewed by the other Seventh-day Adventists as a heretic, and he was ultimately disfellowshipped from the church. Rather than repent, Hotef began his own sect of the church called the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, who were more commonly referred to as the Shepherd's Rod. Hotef saw himself as a prophet and presented himself as such to his followers. In 1934, he established the headquarters for his religious group outside of Waco, Texas, on 189 acres of land he called the Mount Carmel Center. Hotef led his church until his death in 1955, after which there was a power struggle for control of the group. Hotef's wife Florence argued she should be the leader, while a member of the group named Benjamin Roden stated God had shown him he was in fact the new prophet. Florence eventually was named leader. She prophesied that the apocalypse was imminent and that the world would end on April 22, 1959. Roden disagreed with Florence's prophecy, but Florence Hotev stuck to her claim and noted that if her prediction came true, this would prove her legitimacy. When the April 22nd date passed uneventfully, her predictions were shown to be inaccurate, and Roden and his followers left and formed a new group which he called the Branch Davidians. Florence decided to disband the Shepherd's Rod, but the Branch Davidians, under the leadership of the prophet Roden, persisted. They maintained 77 acres of the land at Mount Carmel Center. Benjamin Roden maintained control of the group until his death in 1978 when his wife Lois took over leadership, claiming that she was the new prophet. In 1981, 22-year-old Vernon Wayne Howell joined the Branch Davidians. He was a musician and drifter who had a strong interest in the Bible. Howell had originally joined the mainstream Seventh-day Adventist church two years earlier, but had been ousted from the church for being a bad influence on the other young people in the congregation. After a short stint in Hollywood where he was unsuccessful in launching a career as a musician, Howell relocated to Texas and went to live at Mount Carmel. Howell was well-liked by the other Branch Davidians, especially so by Lois Roden, with whom he began a sexual relationship despite their more than 40-year age difference. Lois passed away shortly thereafter in 1986, when she was 70 years old. Her death brought on another power struggle for control of the group. George Roden and Lois's son claimed he was the next prophet and rightful leader. But Howell claimed it was actually he who had received the message that he was the Lamb of God referred to in the Book of Revelation, the rightful leader of the Branch Davidians. A year-long struggle ensued, with Howell and seven of his followers being exiled from the compound. Roden demanded Howell to prove he was a rightful prophet by raising a person from the dead. One night in 1987, Howell and his seven followers, who were heavily armed, snuck back onto the property to take photographs of the body Roden had exhumed in hopes of getting him criminally charged for desecration of a corpse. Instead, a shootout ensued with Howell taking control of the Branch Davidians. The defeated George Roden remained in the group but became delusional and ultimately murdered his roommate in 1989. He told authorities he believed he was a hitman hired by Howell and was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Roden remained in the state mental hospital until his death. 
With a firm hold on the group, Howell informed his followers his arrival signaled the imminence of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end times. In 1990, he changed his name to David Koresh. He chose the name David as he was the head of the biblical house of David, and Koresh as this was the Hebrew translation of Cyrus, the Persian king, who allowed the Jews to be freed from Babylon and return to Israel. By all accounts, Koresh was a charismatic leader, and he converted more than 100 followers whom he brought to live with him at Mount Carmel. He prophesied that he would have 24 children who would play important roles in the end times. To fulfill his prophecy, Koresh mandated all of his male followers to become celibate, and he took numerous spiritual wives, some of whom were already legally married to other followers, and some who were just children. His youngest wife was only 12 years old, and he reportedly had sex with girls as young as 10. Children who escaped the compound told of rampant sexual and physical abuse perpetrated at the hands of David Koresh. This episode is about Waco, Part 1. and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. David, I know that we've talked a little bit about cults previously in our episode on the Jonestown Massacre, right? but we received an email from a listener suggesting an episode on the siege at Waco, and we felt that we definitely wanted to cover this topic. I think it was uh, good timing because in light of the movie, the docuseries that was put on Netflix, it was something that you and I really sort of got interested in. It's something that we've always been interested in, I think, but definitely more so after uh, some of the information in the docuseries came to light. Yeah, and I think that that was actually made several years ago, but it was recently released on Netflix. And I know that a lot of people have been watching it and it's really kind of brought it back into the forefront. Yeah, I thought it was really well done. I did too. And, you know, when we started digging in to Waco and everything that happened there, we realized we actually wanted to do a two-part series on it because there's so many aspects to this case. There's a lot of information. So this episode, we're talking about the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. And in part two, we're going to discuss the actual siege and the law enforcement piece. Sounds good. So I know that I covered one theory about the indoctrination or the enculturation process in the Jonestown episode, but that was only one theory. There have been several mental health professionals who have researched cult dynamics. Some of the best known names are Robert J. Lifton, Margaret Singer, and Steve Hassan. 
But for this episode, I thought I would discuss just Lifton's theory, as it was one of the first models developed, and it came out of his research in the early 1980s. Also, this theory is quite well known. So Dr. Lifton is a psychiatrist, um, and he was an Air Force psychiatrist in the early 1950s, and then went on to work at the Washington School of Psychiatry, Harvard University, and the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. When Dr. Lifton left the Air Force, he became very interested in studying men who had become prisoners of war, as well as individuals who had been imprisoned in China, and Chinese citizens who had been subjected to Chinese indoctrination and then later escaped. Lifton wanted to understand the process of brainwashing. He wrote a book on his research titled Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, a Study of Brainwashing. He believed the process used to indoctrinate prisoners of war was the same that was used by cults. Dr. Lifton indicated cults had three main characteristics. First, they had a charismatic leader whom the followers worshipped, and increasingly so even after the initial principles that originally were the basis for the group to form lost their power. The cult also engages in thought reform, which Dr. Lifton refers to as coercive persuasion, or what we would probably more commonly know as brainwashing. And finally, the cult leader and those in positions of authority within the organization exploit the group members economically, sexually, or in other manners. So while there are many media articles that refer to the Branch Davidians as a cult, others have actually argued that they were not a cult, but rather a separatist religious movement. First, it's important to mention that the Branch Davidians still exist, and they would not, of course, consider themselves to be part of a cult. So that brings us to the question, which is it? Are they a cult or are they not a cult? So if we consider Lifton's three criteria, there's probably evidence to indicate the Branch Davidians under the leadership of David Koresh met the first and third criteria, as Koresh has often been described as a charismatic leader, and there were numerous reports that the members were being sexually exploited. But how about the second criteria of thought control or brainwashing? Dr. Lifton identified eight criteria of thought reform. The first is what's called milieu control. This refers to the group leader controlling the member's communication with the outside world. So if we look at the Branch Davidians, I think there is evidence for this. First, they were in a fairly isolated area in that compound. And while there was some communication between the members and their families, it appeared to be pretty limited. The second criteria is mystical manipulation. Here, the leader claims to be divine or to have a direct line of communication with God or some other supernatural force. As a result, he or she receives special messages and can make rules that control additional aspects of the followers' lives. This, in my opinion, pretty clearly applied in the case of David Koresh. He claimed not just to be a prophet, but the Lamb of God referred to in the book of Revelation. He enforced rules such as celibacy for the men and his marrying of numerous spiritual wives based on the messages he claimed to receive from God. The third criteria is demand for purity. Group members are encouraged to view the world in a very dichotomous manner, where there are absolutes of good and evil. Members are encouraged to strive for perfection. 
This dichotomous view then gets extended to others and then also to themselves, leading members to blame outside influences or circumstances for their own impurities. There is no tolerance for darkness or for any of the gray areas. And I think, again, we see this with Koresh's demands for celibacy within the group. There's also a suggestion of this in the accounts of physical abuse. One survivor talked about how difficult it was to get used to not being physically abused every time she made a mistake. So I think that provides pretty clear evidence for the demand for purity. Yeah, I would say so. The fourth criteria, according to Dr. Lifton, is the cult of confession. This occurs when the leader tells the followers that all of their sins must be confessed. Now, it can either be that they are required to confess to the leader or to the rest of the group publicly. But rather than this being a way to ask for forgiveness or to repent, it's a means of exploiting people and inducing feelings of guilt and shame, which can be then used as powerful tools to control them later on. In all of the research I did for this episode, I couldn't find any information on this specific aspect applying to the Branch Davidians. The role of confession and repentance is common in Christianity, though, so it's very likely that this was a component of their religious beliefs or practices as as well. But again, it's important to highlight that there's nothing wrong or brainwashing about confession itself. This criteria only refers to instances where confession is used as a means to exploit, humiliate, or control others. I would probably imagine that there was something akin to that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's certainly possible. It wasn't anything that I could find documented explicitly, but I think it's certainly possible. The fifth criteria is the quote-unquote sacred science. Here the leader presents himself or herself as knowing the absolute truth. And because of his or her divine status, there is no way to question or challenge this truth. The leader can really claim anything to be the truth, and no one can argue against it. I think it's arguable that this applied to Koresh. He claimed he was receiving a new interpretation of the seven seals mentioned in the book of Revelation, and I don't believe any of the followers questioned this interpretation. Now the question is, would they have been allowed to question this? I think that in religions, people tend to follow the message of their leader without overtly challenging it. I mean, why would you be part of a religion where you really disagreed with the message, right? Well, in the movie, in the Netflix movie, they portrayed his interpretation, Koresh's interpretation of the seven seals as one of the attracting things that people picked up on and were really fascinated with. And that was one of the ways that he was able to recruit some of the people that were there, I guess, including one of the secondary characters who was pretty prominent in the movie, the docuseries who was supposedly a PhD in theology. That's right. And so, you know, if that was what led people to join the group to begin with, like you said, why would they really question it? Right. They probably wouldn't question that. They probably wouldn't question the theology. They probably would, if anything, I would think, question the lifestyle that surrounded this. Yeah, and I think that that totally makes sense. So, you know, in mainstream religions... I really think that there is room for doubt. You know, people can have doubt, they can have questions, and there can be discussions about it. And if they ultimately disagree, they're allowed to leave. With a cult, that would not be the option. And I don't really know if the Branch Davidians were allowed to freely leave the organization or not. Certainly, the media suggested the followers were not allowed to leave without Koresh's permission, and I think that's how it was 
displayed in the docuseries. But those who survived the siege have also said that they did not have any desire to leave because they had such absolute faith in Koresh. I think that in this case, I don't believe that there was uh, real coercion or violence tactics used to keep people there. At least that's not the impression that I got. I do, however, believe that there was probably a lot of shame maybe used to dissuade people from leaving would be my guess. So more like coercion than any sort of force. Yeah. Okay. I don't think there was any, I, I don't, I don't get the impression that if you wanted to leave, they would pull a gun on you or something like that. I do get the impression that he could manipulate people in such a way that if you wanted to leave, you would have to get over the fact that you were leaving behind people that you really cared about, potentially even your wife or your family members. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So the sixth criteria is loading the language. This means that the group develops their own terms and language that only has meaning to them. It further alienates them from outsiders, as those outside can't really understand what those inside the group are talking about. Dr. Lifton also believes this specialized language and jargon serves to confuse members so they're less able to think critically about what's being said. And I don't know of any evidence of this with the Branch Davidians. Koresh certainly had his own interpretation of the Bible, but I don't know that there was unique terms or language that he developed. I don't know about specific, like, unique terms. Like, you know, I don't think that he made up his own words or anything like that. But, I mean, even, I was thinking about that when I was reading your notes, and even in, you know, our work in corrections and stuff, we have a, a particular lexicon that we use. Sure. You know, and we use a lot of terms that are not necessarily familiar to people outside of corrections. So I could definitely see them. I, I remember, again, quick story. When I had a guy at work who is very religious ask me questions about what I thought about these different types of philosophical things that go on as a part of the discussion inside the religion. But I, I had to stop him. I was like, I don't even really understand what you're talking about. First, we'd have to spend like at least a few hours defining what it is you mean when you use some of these terms. And I think that's a good point. I mean, any group that we're part of really does have its own kind of culture and language that's associated with it. Right. So it's kind of hard to even really make a determination on this criteria, in my opinion. Yeah. That one, I think, is a little bit... I think it was probably done, but I think it was probably done in a not a, an overt way. I think it was probably subtle. Okay. So the seventh criteria is doctrine over person. This means the doctrine, beliefs, and the sacred science is held in higher regard than any individual member's experience. In other words, if a member has an experience that goes against what is taught, their experience is simply dismissed rather than acknowledging any flaws in the doctrine. So again, this is difficult to determine for the Branch Davidians because law enforcement's response actually served in a way to support Koresh's statements to his followers. Right. You know, to them, it appeared this actually was Armageddon as he had prophesied. And it, it just, again, created that reinforcement. However, in the history of the group, we see that this criterion actually didn't apply. So when Florence Hotef predicted the end times would happen on April 22nd, 1959, and it didn't happen, the group splintered. I mean, they lost faith in her. They did not see her as a prophet. 
and they stopped following her. So in this case, the experience of the followers was more important than the doctrine. I think that there have been other groups that we've heard of where they have predicted the end of the world on a specific date. Right. It doesn't happen. And the group just continues on, right? I think that most cult leaders are, you know, uh, people who are religious leaders like that would be very, very uh, sensitive to not drawing a line in the sand like that. It would be just vague enough to so as to be believable. Whereas when you set a hard and fast date like that, it's either going to happen or it's not. Yeah, that's very true. And I remember there was a group several years back that said that they the end times were coming and they had a date. Right. And of course, the day came and, and went. And they said, oh, well, there was, you know, a problem in the interpretation. And this wasn't actually the right date. It's actually this other date. And so I think that's more of an example of doctrine over person where it's like, okay, no, the doctrine is not wrong. You know, maybe we need to make some adjustments to it or, or whatever. But, you know, it's still right. It's still the right kind of path or belief. Right. So finally, the eighth criteria is dispensing of existence. Here, the leader and the group, by extension, gives themselves the power to decide who can and cannot exist. The outsiders are viewed as less than human and, as a result, dispensable. And again, it's hard to say if this occurred with the Branch Davidians. Prior to the raid by the ATF, which we'll talk about in the next episode, there were no accounts of the Davidians being violent or hurting others outside of the group. It is generally believed that although they had many weapons, they had gathered these to protect themselves rather than as a means to go after other people. And their business was also actually selling weapons at gun shows. There's also quite a bit of controversy over who started the shootout with law enforcement initially, which we'll also discuss next episode. But we do know that the Branch Davidians shot and killed four ATF agents. It's unclear if they did this because they thought they were under attack or because they felt the officers were dispensable. From all I've read, there was no information to really suggest that they devalued others, though. Okay. So there you have it. And, you know, while the People's Temple that we discussed during the Jonestown Massacre episode, I think they clearly would meet all eight of these criteria There's definitely some gray area when it comes to the Branch Davidians. Now, I'm not trying to condone their behavior in any way or the way that they treated women and children. But when we think about the specific criteria laid out by Dr. Lifton with regard to that brainwashing element, the thought reform, as he called it, there are some questions about whether all eight criteria applied. And, you know, some might say, what does it matter? But I think the use of the term cult carries some, you know, particular emotional weight for people. A lot of times people will refer to groups that they disagree with as cults as a way to kind of devalue them or dismiss them. But where is the line between people expressing their freedom of religion and it being a cult where people are under undue influence and maybe not making rational choices? And, you know, some have even suggested that this entire situation with Waco may have had a very different course and outcome if the Branch Davidians were not labeled as a cult early on. Now, we don't know that for sure, but, you know, it is something kind of interesting to consider. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that that is definitely true, that idea about labeling, being labeled as a cult. 
and what that sort of meant here in a minute. So first I'll say that I'll admit that I struggled a great deal with David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. The suggestion to look at this topic came from, I think, not just one listener, but a couple of our listeners, wasn't it? Uh, there was one in particular that like wrote us an email about it. Okay. Um, his name was Drew. So thank you, Drew, for the email. Um, but also just kind of in discussing topics with our friends who also listen to the podcast, it certainly came up as, as something that people wanted to talk about. Right. Uh, so admittedly, this is a fascinating case. One that both of us lived through back in 1993. At the time, all we really knew was what the major news outlets were reporting, which was a cult was refusing to surrender to the FBI in Waco, Texas. Right. So for 51 days, we all watched on the news as the standoff finally came to a horrific end when the structure they were holed up in went up in flames. Since that time, there has been a lot of information that has come out about the situation, including both sides of the conflict, the Branch Davidians, and law enforcement. So that's why we put the label bad guys in quotes. It seems that this story is much more complicated than originally thought. I think this was an interesting choice of topic in part due to the new series on Netflix, currently about the standoff. Again, the docuseries takes a look at both sides of the conflict and gives watchers a lot to consider in terms of the gray area on both sides. So that's why we wanted to focus on one side at a time as we will have a lot to say about the law enforcement piece in the next episode. So back to the reason why I struggled with this particular topic, that being the Branch Davidians and David Koresh specifically. The Netflix movie did a lot to humanize Koresh and took a very sort of, I would say, sympathetic approach to him. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it definitely did portray both sides, which, I mean, a lot of times we don't see movies or television shows or news stories where both sides are kind of equally represented. So yeah. yeah, I would agree. It really did kind of bring him to life and it didn't just paint him as a bad guy. Yeah. I enjoyed the series a great deal. I thought it was really well done, including the actor who played David Koresh, you know, and some of the other characters as well. It did seem like a very engineered attempt at combating what we have come to imagine the kind of person Koresh was as portrayed by the media at the time. And that was that he was a charismatic cult leader. The movie on Netflix did take a look at the controversial aspects of Koresh, but seemed to minimize some of the more insidious things he was accused of, including his so-called spiritual marriages with very young girls and the sexual abuse of children. So for this episode, I'm going to make reference to an article from the journalistic website Vox entitled The Waco Tragedy Explained, which was published on April 19th of 2018. I like this article because it seems really balanced to me. So one of the things the article touches on is how David Koresh originally came to power inside the religious sect of Branch Davidians, which, as you stated earlier, Jessica, existed way before David Koresh came along and still exists today. Right. So Koresh was able to manipulate his way to power within the group through his charisma. And funny little thing, we all kind of know what that word means, but I actually had to look it up because I really wanted to see what the definition of charisma was. Yeah. Because you hear it all the time. Yeah, in you terms do. Of, sure. You know, in terms of leaders. So, but it's, it's having a quality about you that uh, inspires others to follow you or obey you. Oh, okay. okay. Interesting. So it's still sort of enigmatic yeah. what this quality is, but there you go. So this involved him, Koresh, becoming the lover of a widow of the former leader of the group by taking control of the group when the widow's son went to prison for murdering someone else who was also vying for power amongst the Davidians. 
At least that's the article that I read that Rodin did when Rodin's son finally did go to prison. It was because he was he murdered a rival who was also vying for power amongst the Davidians. Yeah, and and what I read, so he didn't actually go to prison. He went to the mental hospital because he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay. And um and what he had said was that Koresh had hired him as a hitman to kill this other man who also happened to be his roommate. And they found that that was delusional and that that didn't actually happen. And so he spent the rest of his life in a mental hospital. Okay. So from the beginning, we seem to have what looks like this sort of Machiavellian power play with people being killed, sexual liaisons, and all kinds of stuff like that. What was interesting was how Koresh came to power, ironically, by sleeping with the boss. Well, it was that and also um, what actually had occurred from my understanding is that he shot his way back in because he had been exiled. And then when they came back to the compound, there was a shootout and Koresh and his men actually won. And at that point, the police did become involved and they confiscated all of Koresh's weapons and charged him criminally, but then the charges were dropped and his weapons were returned. Wow. Drama. Yeah, lots of drama, right? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it, it would make a great television show. Yeah, that part of it. Anyway. Yeah, just because it, it's so it's so dramatic, sure. Yeah. So this is the first thing that troubles me about Koresh the, and sort of puts him as an aberration in the substantial history of the Davidians. While the Davidians may be an obscure sect of the Seventh-day Adventists' form of Christianity, they are not one in the same thing. While Koresh did have a great deal of power in the group for a while, he was not the beginning or the end of the group. So I'll be the first to admit that I know very little of the operations or beliefs of the group as they exist today, but from what I can tell, it was more cult-like when Koresh was in power than it probably was before or as it stands today. But that's just my opinion on the matter. So it was during the Koresh years that the Branch Davidians seemed to be more most cult-like. That is, as defined by some of the definitions that you mentioned earlier. It would be like looking at the group in terms of their leader at the time. Kind of the way we do according to our leaders here. You know, like saying, oh, those were the Reagan years. Or those were the FDR years. Right, yeah, sure. Okay, so for the Branch Davidians, those were the Koresh years. So I think we need to kind of separate the Branch Davidians from Koresh to a certain extent, especially as they exist today. And yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. Yeah, and that was one of the main points that the that the article in Vox sort of made as well. So obviously, the most controversial part of Koresh's leadership had to do with his treatment and demands of his followers. Ironically, this aspect was not why the ATF and FBI were interested in him originally. We'll get more into that in the next episode. Suffice to say, the state of Texas and the sheriff of McLennan County did not see the Branch Davidians really as any kind of threat to themselves or to others until the federal government became involved over a report from the sheriff's office about a UPS package containing casings for grenades. But this is Texas, right? I mean, you know what I mean. Lots of people in Texas own guns. Some own lots of them, and they many are probably right on the edge of what is considered legal in terms of how they are modified and how they are acquired. The so-called bump stocks that became a centerpiece from the Las Vegas shooter comes to mind. While the stock is, or was, considered legal to own, it was sort of a way of skirting the laws about modifying an assault rifle to make it fully automatic, instead using the recoil energy of the bullets to cause another trigger pull in rapid succession. So I'm not a gun expert, 
just so everybody knows, but that seems my rudimentary understanding of it. So that's what kicked off this investigation. Again, lots of guns, some modified, is nothing out of the ordinary for rural Texas. Grenades, on the other hand, that was a step up. So the sheriff called the ATF. The constant preaching by Koresh about the need to engage in a battle of some kind, an apocalypse, a fire, as he called it, was something that is typical of cult leaders. This obviously serves to nurture an us-versus-them mentality, a strong group cohesion, a desire to protect each other. We see this all the time as a tactic often used in times of war or when any leader that seeks to consolidate a group and capitalize on everyone's fear that there are lots of other groups or governments or whatever that are out to do you and your loved ones harm. Koresh seemed to have a keen awareness of this and used it to keep control of the group and to keep them tied to each other. This to me is cultish in nature. Now we're getting into the cultish gray area. Add to that a cache of semi-legal weapons and the push for a belief to constantly expect end times and we're moving right along into cult territory. Okay, I could see that, sure. Okay. So now we have a reason to start eyeing this group of people and Koresh specifically. Now let's look at Koresh's other cult-ish tactics. So quick story. I've been a fan of the late scholar and writer Gore Vidal. I never got into his novels much, um, which is what he's typically known for, but more so his essays on all manner of things, especially his political essays. One of the points that he used to make quite regularly and strongly, I may add, had to do with the regulation of sexual behavior between consenting adults. As a gay man, Gore Vidal used to argue that the control of sexuality by labeling it deviant and outlawing it was a way to control citizens because the control of sexuality generally affects everyone. He made a point about something called a dead letter law and how this was used to arrest some known mobsters in Florida years ago who had traveled there with their girlfriends. The police couldn't arrest them for mob-related charges or organized crime-related charges, so they used these dead letter laws, which are laws that are still on the books but are no longer enforced, to arrest the mobsters on charges of things like sodomy, oral sex, which was technically illegal at the time in that state, even though this had nothing to do with why the authorities were interested in the men to begin with. Okay, so here's my point. This is one of the strongest forms of evidence to suggest that Koresh was a cult leader. One of the ways that he consolidated control over his followers was to expressly limit their sexual behavior, declaring only himself the one who could engage in sexual activity. This took the form of him sleeping and impregnating some of the wives of his followers, while at the same time declaring that all other men in the group had to remain celibate. This is where Koresh really crosses the line into cult behavior for me. When we look at cults, oftentimes it is strict control of sexual behavior, again, something that touches everyone, mm -hmm. that becomes somehow central to the group's cohesion and self-identity. This brings to mind another documentary we watched on Netflix about the Buddhafield cults. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And how its leader, a guy named Jaime Gomez, prohibited his followers from having sex with each other even though it came to light later that he had been a gay porn actor himself and often coerced his male followers into sexual relationships in private. It also brings to mind the Lord Our Righteousness cult out of New Mexico, also founded by a former Seventh-day Adventist preacher by the name of Wayne Curtis Bent, who went on to prohibit his followers from having sex with each other while he went on to spiritually marry 
or whatever it was called, some of the wives of his followers, including the wife of his own son, all under the claim that this was divinely commanded. So let's also not forget the sexual bondage themes that recently made headlines in the Nexium cult as well, where the leader, Keith Rainier, had his woman swear allegiances to him and be branded with his initials. Yes, so we do see definitely a recurring theme. Oh, yeah. So this seems to be par for the course in any kind of cult, generally speaking. That is, the control of how the members can engage in sexual relationships. In the case of the Rosh Nish group, which was the focus of the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country, or the docuseries, I should say, it was the express promise of uninhibited and unregulated sex that seemed to captivate so many of the followers. In the docuseries, some state inspectors recounted arriving at the commune site in Oregon only to be greeted by a couple having sex just randomly on a bridge that went over the road completely in the open, which was something that was routine on the Roshnish property. In this case, while sexuality was not limited or prohibited in any way, it was still a major focus of the cohesion of the group. So this group used human sexuality as part of the cult-ish mentality. They just used it in the opposite way than most other cults would. Yeah, they used it kind of as as a way to get people to join the cult. Sure, and to keep them there. Yeah. Hey, you can you can sleep with whoever you want, uh, whenever you want, wherever you want. Right. But again, sex in some way, shape, or form became the centerpiece of how the group arranged itself. So as we get further into the subject of sex within the world of David Koresh, we ultimately come to the charges that he felt entitled to, again, spiritually marry underage girls as part of his so-called attempt to populate the world with his divine children. And again, this is another way to consolidate his express and divine right to be the only one who was allowed to engage in this kind of activity. But this is where the practice becomes even more insidious, in my opinion, because it involves the manipulation and exploitation of children. Now, according to the Vox article, there had been investigators about the abuse of children by Koresh, and it didn't yield any really, truly conclusive evidence. Although, according to some of the children who lived at the Mount Carmel site, Koresh did sexually abuse minors. That was your research as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's pretty well established from reports of people who left the the compound and the children who were allowed to leave. Okay. So here we have the demand that followers continue to give up everything, in this case, their own children, for the greater glory of the leader of the group. While in the Roshnish group, the people did not give up sex, sometimes it can be other things as well. As you mentioned, in their case, it was large sums of money. So Osho, the leader of the group could maintain things like a fleet of, if I'm not mistaken, over 20 Rolls Royces, you know, collections of Rolex watches or whatever it was that he wanted. It's when sexual abuse of children normalized as part of some kind of spiritual doctrine or divine commandment that this turns full cult, in my opinion. We watched another docuseries on the so-called Children of God cult where this took place. Whether or not the Branch Davidians, as they exist today, engage in any kind of behavior even remotely like this, is unknown. I I don't know. I admit that I have no information regarding who they are today, but during the Koresh years, they had many of the makings of a cult, as far as I can tell. You know, like we discussed with the Jim Jones episode, we take our darkness with us wherever we go. We can believe in a charismatic leader or some kind of communal social setup will somehow fulfill what we've been missing from our lives 
By this, I mean that what we are missing is something we need to figure out within ourselves rather than look for things outside of ourselves. Many of these groups, regardless of how they come together or what they specifically believe or how they use these beliefs to create cohesion and a sense of belonging in the group, often end in tragic ways when the darkness that they are trying to escape in themselves begins to take over. So I would think it would be fair to say that the Branch Davidians had some, and I put this in quote, cult years under Koresh's leadership. I actually did appreciate David Thibodeau's presentation of the people of the Branch Davidians, as I do believe that a number of them were trying to live their belief system in a peaceful way. But this is how cult leaders generally operate, by slowly turning up the heat until the water in the pot is boiling, all before anyone can generally see just what is happening to themselves or others. Despicable behavior slowly becomes normalized as the group becomes more and more cohesive against the dark forces somewhere out there. But I think Thibodeau more wanted to express his feelings of community and family with the others who were part of the group, which I can understand and appreciate. His accounts do serve to cloud the idea that the group was indeed a cult, which is where the article from Vox also leaves off. Obviously, it is debated whether or not Koresh engaged in child sexual abuse, which would become an argument used by the president at the time and the Justice Department as a reason why they needed to force the Davidians out of the compound. Up until this point, that is, Koresh marrying and sexually abusing children, the idea of the cult is probably more debatable than not. Once it crosses that line, however, is where I think the cult label fits. So in many ways, Koresh's behavior was cultish. The one thing that fully tips the scale in the cult direction just happens to be the most highly controversial. Yeah, and I mean, while it is difficult to prove in maybe like the legal sense, we do have all of the accounts of the children, of the women, of the people that lived there and, and that were able to escape the cult. Right. And so, you know, I, there's really no reason to doubt their reports of when, what went on there. And I think that your your point is very well made. I mean... What Koresh did to the children there is inexcusable. I mean, it was clearly illegal behavior. And um, and I definitely see your argument on how that kind of pushed the line over into it truly becoming a cult. And, you know, laying out all of the different cult documentaries, all of the things that we've read about cults. I mean, that sexual piece does really seem to be present and all of those examples that you gave, and many more. Well, I think that was Gore Vidal's point. There, there is something about our sexuality that when you tap into that in some way, shape, or form, you know that you've got something that affects the entire group. It's not something that is, okay, I can find something that can motivate this person, or I can find something that motivates this person. Generally speaking, Everybody on some level is motivated by their sexuality. Well, sure. It's an innate desire, an innate need, an innate drive, right? Right. And so when you can gain control of that and how people practice that, it makes for a lot of power, makes for a lot of control over people. And that was always uh, sort of Gore Vidal's point. And so particularly when it came to the gay community. And how they were labeled as deviants because they were more difficult to control. Because gay couples, especially at that time, mm -hmm. didn't normally have children. When you have a family that is dependent on you for support, it makes you, he, Gore Vidal would argue, or used to argue that it made you very docile. 
and easy to control. Whereas members of the gay community would be much more difficult to control because they did not have lives like that. And so that was that was Gore Vidal's argument. Like that was his belief. Yes. That so what it what his overarching point was again is that when you tap into that this element of sexuality it's going to affect everybody in some way shape or form yeah and if you can gain control of that you have control of the group whatever that group is yeah and so what do you think i mean do you think that it was problematic that they labeled the branch davidians a cult so early on or do you think that that was pretty right on or well i won't go too much into that because we're, we're going to talk more about that in the next episode yeah, we will. but i will say short answer yes it is problematic hmm. okay All and right. i think that that that's the research that you had found and i think that that was that was a very strong point in the vox article that i read as well all right well then to be continued on that point so we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up but we will definitely have more to say about Waco in part two in a couple of weeks. Uh, so we wanted to thank our listener, Drew, for the suggestion. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can send us an email from our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also find our discussion page there where we'll have some links to some articles. We'll have a link to that Vox article and some other resources related to this episode. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And again, we just wanted to thank you all for the reviews, the ratings, the kind emails, and for sharing our podcast with others. So, David, we've officially been doing this for over a year now. Wow. Yay. <laughs> and the response that we've gotten is way more than what we ever imagined. So thank you all for your support. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with part two of Waco. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus both provided by Gemendo.